Matthew 28, and I'll just start in verse 16 and finish the chapter. It says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And so we'll, we'll pray before we continue. 
Father, again, we thank you for the word that you've given to us. Uh, thank you that we can gather together um, around it and in worshiping you this morning, God. And, and Lord, we just ask that you would just guide my thoughts as I'm speaking this morning. I pray, Lord, that the words that I say would be an encouragement this morning, um, that you would work in our hearts, God, through the, this time together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this was interesting, getting ready here. Um, I, w- I was trying to, to write what I was going to preach today, and I was stuck, and I, I couldn't figure out what to do next. And Jen asked me, she said, oh, I'm teaching Sunday school. Tell me what you're we're preaching on. I'm like, well, I don't even know yet. But So I started to tell her what I was doing, and she said, well, that's easy. <laughs> and then she tells me what her thought was. I'm like, huh, you're right. And it took almost no time to finish <laughs> from that moment. And I was just like, struggling and struggling with it. I just got hung up on on something that I knew wasn't what I was supposed to preach, and I just didn't know where to go. And then, as soon as I told her what I was doing, she's like, well, I have to sing this song. You have to tell our, our story. And so that's part of what I'll be doing today. So the song that she just sang is, is a part of our testimony and our story of how we got to where we are right now. So... She said she didn't know if she could sing it without crying, and then she did, but I didn't. <laughs> so. <laughs> Time's up already. <laughs> That's right. Um, and then, you'll see later, but David gets up and, and reads one of the passages that I'm going to turn to this morning without any pre-planning involved here. And so I just see the way God works sometimes is just outside of our thoughts and our ideas, our control. And he just puts things together in a way that we couldn't. And so I'm just so glad for, for the way God works. And so all I really want is one word out of what I read this morning in Matthew. Verse 19. Go. (laughs) Go. And that word is, it should mean a lot to us as a believer because this is the instruction that we're given to preach the gospel. (laughs) And it's not limited to the disciples. It's not limited to to pastors and preachers and evangelists. This is like every one of us is given this instruction. It's to go. Go and preach. And it's interesting the way that the, the different Gospels are given to us and they record the exact same conversation completely differently sometimes. And it's just the, the take that each one of these people had on that conversation, what they took away from it. And so we get a, we get a bigger picture than if, if we only had one person writing. And yeah, God, you know, it, that, this is not on the topic, but that whole thing of we have four Gospels because we have these four different aspects, different viewpoints of the Gospel. And we see different, different significant features of it from the different points of view. Couldn't if, if God inspired his word, told each person what to write, couldn't he have done it in just one? It's like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep, he could have. But he has used it this way and has had more effect because of this and having these different viewpoints it gives us a better picture than if only one person had written all of that information in one spot. God used it the way he, he wanted to use it. Anyway, if we, if we look over at Mark chapter 16, 
we have the same the same event, the same thing of Jesus' final words with his disciples, and yet we get a little bit here's a sentence that we we know better than the one that we know in Matthew. I, I, at least I do, anyway. Um, and so we get to, to verse 15, and it says, He said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. So that's a little bit more specific uh, than what he said Matthew, he says, go and teach. Well, here, like, he's specific of what they need to teach. Go and preach the gospel to every creature. I don't know if that means your, your cat and your dog and your goldfish, necessarily. But it certainly means every person that you meet in your life ought to hear the gospel coming out of you. I remember as a, a young man... Um, I don't remember the exact circumstances or who the conversations happened with, but I remember it was this big thing that a lot of people who in private would profess to be a Christian, but the the common theme was that, well, my faith is personal, it's private. I don't tell other people what I believe. Well, if that's the case, then you don't actually believe the gospel (laughs) because the gospel tells us that our faith isn't private, that it it is a a thing to be proclaimed and announced to everybody. (laughs) It's not a private thing, and we're instructed to to share that message with as many people as we possibly can. And if, if you want to look over in Romans chapter 10... When, when people give or are taught how to present the gospel, we often use what they call the Romans Road. And you'll start off in, in Romans chapter 3 or so, and you see, for all of sin come short of the glory of God, and you get over into Romans 6, and for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so we, we establish the sin and then the consequence for sin and and we, we build on this to get the whole picture of the gospel. And we can, we can create that entire picture as we walk through the, the book of Romans. And so we call it the Romans Road. And we get to Romans 10, and we get the, the pinnacle of the salvation experience here. Of Once we understand our sin and our need for a Savior, and we understand that Christ died for us on that cross, that he paid for our sin on the cross. We get to this point. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Your your salvation, your, your faith in Christ isn't intended to be a private, personal thing. This is supposed to be a, an outward spoken thing. And the next verse tells us why. I think the next verse tells us why. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. We, if you truly believe in Christ, you're not going to be ashamed to tell people that you believe in Christ. If you're, if you're embarrassed to say it, um, according to what I see here, you might want to check if you actually truly believe it. <laughs> if you've truly trusted him for, with your eternal salvation, can you not trust him to, to get you through telling a few people about him? <laughs> we need to tell people. And so the instruction right from the beginning of our salvation is that it's supposed to be something that we speak out loud that we announce to people that I've put my faith for my eternal salvation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ.
That's, that's who we are. That's what we ought to be professing. And so Matthew, when Jesus' last words to his disciples that are recorded in, in these Gospels is that you are to go and preach and teach, tell people. Tell people what God has done for you. Go one more time back to one of the Gospels, Luke chapter 19. This isn't the, the last thing Jesus is saying to his disciples, but it's, it's, some, it's a teaching that is a very clear teaching of our current time, basically. Um, we see Jesus, like the, well, we'll, just, we'll just start here in verse 11. Luke 19, verse 11. It says, And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. And so here's the, the setup, is that the people thought that the kingdom was going to immediately appear. And Jesus is like, um, no, I'm, I'm heading up there to go and die. And the kingdom's not coming right away. And so he's trying to give them some instruction of like, this is what it's going to be like. And so he gives them a parable. And the parable in verse 12 says, he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his 10 servants and delivered them 10 pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of the thing. It, it, it's got a different lesson in the rest of the parable than what I, where I want to focus here. But he's given an instruction, and this is the instruction to us that are waiting for his return. Christ went away. He was caught up into heaven, and he's promised to return. But in the meantime, the instruction is to occupy until I come. Occupy till I come. What does that mean? <laughs> I, uh, we, we have ideas of what it means. I, just, I, I went to the Webster's Dictionary. Um, there's more than two, but there's two basic definitions that fit what this is probably trying to tell us. The first would be to take possession. So to occupy is to take possession, and in particular of, of a land or a property or something like that. And the second definition is to employ, to busy oneself, as in every man should be occupied or should occupy himself in some useful labor. That's what God wants us to do, is to, to be busy to occupy ourselves with some useful labor. And it doesn't just mean I go to my nine-to-five job and I make trinkets and sell them and buy food to put on my table or I, I garden and I do whatever it is that you do for a living. You go and do that and be busy doing that. And it's useful because I'm, I'm making this useful thing or I'm providing this useful service, or, or whatever it is. That's not what he's talking about. We're, we're to be useful in the gospel, in the preaching of the gospel, in occupying our world, occupy this land, wherever God has put you, for him. <laughs> the, church, the church did that really well at one time. And when America got established, there were godly people that wanted to set up a place that honored God, and they made these rules and this established doctrine of how this country is going to function, and it's going to function in a way that honors God. And that happened for, to a large degree, and again, not completely, obviously. Not everybody in America was saved even back in those times. But those who were occupied and were doing something useful, as in we're taking this land and we're going to honor God 
with the way that we live and the way that we rule and the way that we operate in this land. And between then and now, things have gone the wrong direction. The church is no longer occupying. We're just crawling back into a corner somewhere and we're, we're just going with the flow and joining the world in whatever direction they want. And you can go to your whatever. <laughs> I don't want to say it. The, the things that have taken place, like the story time that happens at the libraries has now entered into churches. And like, what? <laughs> it's, it's just, this isn't us occupying. That's, the world is occupying our space. <laughs> That's wrong. It's, it's the wrong way. We've, God didn't want for Christians to be weak. <laughs> when Jesus, Jesus promotes humility and, we, we, and meekness. Um, I think it was, it was, I should be careful how much I quote Jordan Peterson. He's not, not like a spiritual leader, but he, he's a wise person in worldly things. But he, he talked about meekness one time. And to be meek is not to be weak. <laughs> to be meek is to be very powerful and yet have that well in control. There's a difference. To be able to conquer, <laughs> to defend, to overpower, and yet to hold that back and, and allow certain things to happen, certain injustices to happen to me, that doesn't make me weak. That means I'm meek. I'm allowing some things to take place that I could stop if I chose to. And I would stop when the time is right. We're going to look back at, at Moses here in a minute. Moses is described as a meek man. As Moses is not a weak man in any way, shape, or form. Moses was reluctant in certain areas. But he ruled what was probably millions of people and demanded respect and submission from those people. And they gave it. <laughs> That's not the picture that we have of meekness when we see the word typically and what we think of Christians. Christians are not supposed to be just a mouse hiding in the corner. We, we're, we're supposed to be the lion <laughs> that has it in control. But to occupy until he comes. So does that mean every person here ought to be in ministry and we are all to go out and start new churches and be missionaries on the... Not necessarily. To occupy till, we, till he comes. It's like, do you have an occupation? Then do that for God's glory. We could look at scriptures that tell that, and I've done it before, but... We are to do what God has given us to do with our might as unto the Lord. This is where I'll pick up the, our testimony. I was working as a mechanic. I bought my father-in-law's automotive repair shop and I was running that shop. With burning in me a desire to preach. To do something for God. And the knowledge, certain, that God had more than fixing cars in my future. But I knew that that's where God had me at that moment. And I used it for his glory to the best of my ability. I had customers that came for counseling, for marriage counseling, <laughs> in my shop. I had prayer meetings in the driveway on the street of our shop. I had customers witnessing to... We had a, 
a guy that we affectionately called Stinky Pete. He didn't shower much. But he hung around, and we loved him anyway. And he would just hang out at the shop. Um, he's actually the reason I started working for my father-in-law, because he didn't show up for work for quite some time. He lived three houses away, but his car was broke down, so he couldn't come to work. <laughs> this was... <laughs> My father-in-law phoned me and asked me to come and help him and shortly after I started my apprenticeship and, and, and it just went from there. But Pete always hung around. Um, so Pete was there one day and Jess Bjorkman, I think it was Jess, was there and I'm working on her truck. And Pete's happy to hang around because she's a very beautiful young lady. And she starts witnessing to him. <laughs> so, do you know my Jesus? Like, that's what my shop was. Um, we finished lunch break one time. And I had this uh, young girl working for us. And she's standing at the doorway trying to go back to the other bay to, to keep working on a vehicle. And she stood there for a full hour as I gave her the gospel. <laughs> it's just, that was how we operated. And that was my, my entire desire was to honor God with what I was doing. I was trying to fulfill this of occupy until I come. Whatever it is that we do, it's to be to the Lord. And so our, our faith ought not to be a secret thing that nobody around us knows or is surprised to find out someday when something comes up. What do you mean you go to church? I won't name anybody, but as talking with somebody one day, and their neighbor came up, and their neighbor attended the same church as me. They were shocked to find out that that neighbor went to church. <laughs> that shouldn't be the case. It should not be a surprise to the people around you that you attend church on Sunday morning. That you believe in the Bible or in the gospel. Right? This shouldn't be a surprise. It should be common knowledge to everybody around you. That's our instruction, is to, to go and tell. And so, from that point, we're running this garage, and um, my wife started volunteering at Dorian Bible Camp. The people at the church we were attending at the time were, were involved there, and they were doing some renovation work, and they were picking up some floor tile, and the guy only had a minivan, and he's doing like the big area of these tiles. And so his van could only hold a, a few packages. There was going to be many trips, and we had the three-quarter ton Dodge truck. And Jen's like, well, I can haul that stuff for you. And so she does that, and then they invite her to stay for tea, which she doesn't drink, but she stayed. And then she helped lay out some of the stuff, and... And then she went back the next day and the next day and, and for weeks. And then, you know, she drags me out there and you have to see this place. And we get involved and they're looking for new directors. And so we applied as the directors for Dorian Bible Camp because as we looked at it and we used to guide canoeing and we ran kids camps and we did all kinds of things. And I wanted to be into ministry that was like the burning thing is I want to be in ministry. And so we applied. Thinking that this is the thing that God has prepared us for throughout our lives. It's like this thing must be what God has prepared us for. Like everything has brought us to this point. And yet they hired someone who had applied about the same time as us from South Africa that immigrated from South Africa. and So during this time, I was also preaching frequently at the Dorian uh, Bible Fellowship, um, filling in as they didn't have a pastor. And somewhere along the way, I put in an application as a pastor there. But that was around the same time that Martin Lord from South Africa had already arrived and they chose between the two of us and they chose 
Martin as their pastor. So somehow some guy from South Africa outbid me in two applications <laughs> to go into ministry. And I was kind of... I, I, I'm not a dream person. God doesn't give me dreams. Doesn't, like... I had a dream one night during that process of being the pastor at, at the Dorian Church. And I thought, God actually gave me a dream. He told me what's going I never became the pastor of Dorian. <laughs> it's like, nope, that wasn't, that wasn't God. That was just me. It was on my heart and mind, and I just dreamed about it. That wasn't God. So as all of this takes place, and so I start meeting with my pastor. Every, every week, I'd head up to the church, and we'd meet for an hour or so. And we'd be talking about different things, and, and I was still preaching at that point, I think, somewhere. And so we talk about you know, how, to, how to build a sermon or how to preach it or just different aspects of ministry. And, that, you know, and one, at one point he says, you know, maybe the garage is where God wants you. Maybe that is your ministry. I'm like, yeah, it is right now, but I know, like, I'm certain it's not. And so then when some other day, he says, will you ever think about Round Lake Bible Camp? They're also looking for directors. I said, yeah, no, I don't think so. God's not pointing me that direction at all. And we, he, he just smiles and shrugs. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and so it was shortly after that, weeks or months, whatever, I don't know, Mark Arnold shows up at the church to do a presentation for Round Lake Bible Camp. And in that presentation, he also included that the board has told us they've been looking to retire from the camp for a number of years. So this wasn't like the board just, goodbye, you're fired. But the board said, regardless of whether we find somebody this year or not, this is going to be your last year running the camp. We'll find another way to run it so that you guys can retire as, as you've desired the shivers on my spine and I've said I, I'm sure it was it was God poking me but using Jen's finger <laughs> <laughs> there was zero doubt in my mind at that moment that that was exactly what God wanted me to do and so we went and we applied immediately But that song that Jen sang, it's a thousand sleepless nights. I didn't, I, she said I should do the math again. But essentially, that song was what was part of our testimony. It was like from the time that we thought that we should have been here till we got hired to be over here was approximately that thousand <laughs> sleepless nights. Knowing that God had something for us and yet not knowing what that thing was or where he wanted us. But one key thing within all of this was, so I, I had started looking at ads for people, you know, churches looking for pastors, and I was going to try to apply. And there was this one in particular that I was interested in. But their application required, like, many pages of written answers to these various questions that they had about what you believe about this and your testimony and all this stuff. Well, at the time I was preaching regularly. I was teaching a Bible study at our church and working full-time. I had no time. I was too busy preparing Bible studies and preaching to fill out the application to apply for this job as a pastor. And I finally came to the point where I said, God, if, if you want me somewhere, you're going to have to make it obvious. I'm going to stop trying to put myself where you don't want me. And it was a very short amount of time between that moment and Mark and Christy coming and doing that presentation <laughs> and God revealing, like, this is where I want you. But it required me to stop trying to control that and to let God 
put me where he wanted me. I say that to try to understand, like, we thought we'd be, like, Mark and Christy were at the camp for 20 years, 25 years, whatever it was. Her dad was at the camp for 25 years prior to them. The, the push was like, well, we're going to be there for 25 years till we retire. And then COVID struck, and here we are. <laughs> but in that, we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 3, if you want to turn there. In that process, our church, we, so we, we were at the camp for about a year, and we were kind of church hopping. Uh, we were doing presentations all over the place and whatnot. So we hadn't settled into any particular church once we moved we moved to Heimers. Um, we had been Mark and Christy were going to the, the Methodist church, so we we'd gone there semi regular, but we were all over the place. And one Sunday we we're just talking, was, well, we've never even heard a word about this Baptist church that's just down the road. And we we're just curious about this church. And so we showed up and 12 people here that Sunday morning. That was normal. Um, and Marnie's husband, Chris Frey, was pastoring. This was in November that we started coming. I think I heard him preach three times. Maybe four, if you count the time that he, between hospital visits, he came back one final time. And so from that point, I started preaching here. Um, Barry and I took turns for about a year, I think. They hired Chris Vieira for nine months. <laughs> and then after that, I I, w- I went for coffee with, with Royden, who was the deacon at the time. This is, if you'd have me, <laughs> I'd, I'd like to be the pastor. And we had to sort of discuss that and it's like, yeah, this has to take second place to the camp because the camp was my first, first obligation at that point. And anyway, we brought it to the church and they said yes, and here I am. And then the camp shut down and, and now here I am. <laughs> and I don't have time for the camp anymore. So God worked through all these things to, to put me where he wanted me, and I believe this is that place. Look at my experience matches very much some of what I see in Scripture. And so there's, God does things in different ways and uses people in different ways. There's not a, a cookie-cutter way that you have to do it this way and then this is how God's going to do it. But here's, here's um, Moses as a, an example. Exodus chapter 3, um, we get the burning bush where Moses is there. Um, we get to verse... I'll just, I'm just going to read a couple of spots out of this passage here. Verse 9, so Exodus 3, verse 9 says, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses didn't want the job, didn't feel qualified for that job. And God answers him, and they have this discussion, well, who, am I, who do I tell them sent me? And he says, I am that I am, has sent thee. And so, we get to chapter 4, and Moses isn't quite convinced yet. Verse 1 says, Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken to my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And so God gives him the staff and turning into the snake and, and the various miracles that he's going to perform to prove that God has sent, indeed sent him. But he's still making excuses why he he should not be going. We get to verse 10 
in chapter 4. It says, And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I'm, I'm not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I'm slow of speech and of a slow tongue. I'm not a good talker. It's doing fine right there, though. Verse 11 says, The Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb or the deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. Making excuses. And God's like, I'm not having it. I'm going to send you, and you are going to do it. This is probably a typical Christian response, right? When the preacher says, you need to go and start telling people about Christ. Well, but I, just, I don't know what to say. <laughs> Let God speak through you. You'll figure it out. <laughs> and if you don't figure it out the first time, well, after that first experience and you kind of made a mess of it, you'll you'll. You'll work through that, and the next time, you'll do better. And the time after that, you'll do even better. Until it's just natural, and it just flows. God will help you speak. God will give you the strength to do it. Stop making excuses why you can't. There's another example. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 6... Isaiah chapter 6, and of course it's Isaiah speaking here. He's writing the story of what took place. And God's there. Literally, he sees this vision with the, the seraphims and, and all these amazing vision, and they're crying and worshiping God. And his response, when you get to verse 5, so Isaiah sees himself in God's presence, and we get to Isaiah 6, verse 5. He says, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then... One of these seraphims comes and takes a coal and he touches his lips and says, Thy iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged. It's like, that excuse is gone. <laughs> In verse 8, it says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? We need a messenger. Who's going to go? And Isaiah's like, I will. <laughs> Puts up his hand. I'll go. That's how we ought to be. <laughs> we ought to recognize who we are, not think that I'm something great, and boy, could God use someone like me. No, Isaiah was, God, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm, I should be dying here now that I'm seeing you. But that's not what God did. So Isaiah recognized his sinfulness, but God says, no, I, I can still use that. Don't worry about that. And so as soon as God, it's like, okay, I need somebody to go. It's like, well, well, can I? <laughs> can I go? Can I go tell them? Like, yeah. And he sent him. What a blessing to have somebody that's just willing it's like, I know I'm not worthy of this, but if you need someone, I'll do it. It's the opposite of Moses. And yet, God used both of them incredibly. I said I was going to use that story in Acts, so if you want to turn with me to, to Acts chapter 9. 
Now I don't have to read the whole story because we heard it this morning. Acts chapter 9. This is the conversion of, of Saul and he then becomes Paul. converted, he's, he's God, Christ comes to him, meets him on the road and blinds him and he goes and waits. So we'll get to well, Acts 9, I'll start in verse 10, I'll read, reread this part of it. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, behold, I'm here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. And then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here... He hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way, as thou camest, hast sent me, that thou might receive thy sight, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received his sight forthwith, and arose, and was baptized. Look at Ananias here. He's a, a Christian, a believer, that he's a, a devout man. And God appears to him and says, I want you to go and I want you to go to this guy Saul of Tarsus. It's like, I, I've heard of that guy. I don't want to go to him. <laughs> he's, he, he's on his way to kill Christians. It's like, yeah, but I want you to go. And so he goes. But you know the part of that message was that Paul would, would know what he was going to have to suffer for Christ? Like, he's going to go and preach to, to kings and to, like, all these people. It gives this list, like, he's going to do amazing things. He's going to preach to all these people. But he is going to suffer for it. Like, you couldn't stop Paul from heading headlong into that dangerous mission field that he had. Like, it didn't matter what was going to happen to him. And remember, if you go through that story in Acts, like, there's guys telling Paul, I've seen in a vision what is going to happen to you. You need to stop. You can't go there. He's like, no, I'm going. <laughs> I got a mission. I got, I got a message to preach to those people. And he goes, and he's, he gets arrested. He goes through exactly what those people said he was going to go through. But he was determined, I'm going to go and preach there. I have to go. It didn't matter. When you get Paul's testimony in one of the other letters that he writes, it's like, he suffered like he ought to have been dead ten times over for the things that he suffered and went through for the sake of preaching the gospel, but he wouldn't stop. It was just like, yeah, give me more. Send me home, please. That's like, and we're worried that somebody might make fun of us because we're a Christian. We're worried what someone might say. Man, we... We live in a world where our, our biggest hardship is somebody mocks us for our faith. 
I was a, a, not a good Christian at the time, but I was a Christian. I, I, I believed. I, I was saved, but I wasn't living it. I was probably 20 years old or so, working a security job, and I don't know what came up, but something. And I'm like, I admitted to my coworkers that I was a Christian. But I like, I hate this part of this story because I downplayed that. That, oh, well, I'm not as righteous as, you know, like I, I knew I wasn't what I ought to be. And, but I downplayed my faith to try to lessen the, the ridicule that I might receive from these guys. And that was kind of the end of that story, but they, they brought it up at other times. And they mocked me at various times. And like afterwards, I look back at that, I'm like, you know, if that's the worst that I go through as a Christian... For my faith, and that was me not even not living right, not actually defending my faith, trying to downplay it, and I got mocked and ridiculed for it anyway. I'm glad that I did at this point. But if that's the worst that ever happens to me, like, where's the reward that Paul speaks of for suffering for Christ's sake? Like, we, we don't even know what suffering is. And yet we're scared to actually proclaim him. Moses eventually gave in after all of his <laughs> excuses of why he shouldn't go and do this thing. God used him. And God knew that he was the man for that job. And so God was patient and answered each one of those objections till he had no more. He was like, fine, I'll go. And he went. We need to stop making excuses of why we can't and just submit to God. Say, you told me to go. I'm going to go. And that doesn't, you know, I don't know who here is going to go, <laughs> literally, <laughs> and Maybe you're going to go on a mission field. Maybe you're going to preach and become a pastor. I don't know. But the rest of us, we just need to, to do it where we are. Go in and start telling people about the gospel. Tell people that Christianity isn't a religion of rules, but it's a religion of God loved me so much that he sent his son to pay for my sin, to die in my place. And that it's me putting my faith in that that gets me eternal life. What a blessing that is. Let's pray.